0: (laughs) One of the things pastors try to do is time their walk up here just before the music ends. And what you just witnessed was the worst timing in the history of the world. (laughs) Uh, So if you will, grab a Bible, open up to Luke chapter 1. We've been working our way through the, the gospel of Luke. It's a little weird to be in all this Christmassy stuff right now because... It's not Christmassy and at Christmas time we won't be in it, but that's uh, kind of the commitment to preaching through a book of Scripture rather than always just trying to time it with things that are going on. So uh, we're going to be in verses 26 through 38 today. This is this passage that is uh, throughout history has mostly been known as the Annunciation story. It's called that. because it is annunciation uh, is a word that just means to make a significant announcement. And there's no more significant announcement than the announcement we're going to see today. The announcement of, uh, that God would come to live among his creation as his creation. So uh, let's go ahead and just jump right into the text. Luke chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse 26. <clears throat> in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth Heavenly Father, we come before you, humbling ourselves before you. We acknowledge that this is your word to us and for us. We ask that you would open our ears and our hearts to receive what we've just read. Lord, open our eyes to behold wonderful truth in your word so that Christ would be exalted in our hearts. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Some of you that are older might know this reference, but on December 28, 1975, Roger Staubach of the Dallas Cowboys reared back and he threw a last-minute throw as far as he could into the end zone. That catch was actually caught by a guy named Drew Pearson, which resulted in the Cowboys having a victory over the Minnesota Vikings that day. Staubach, in an interview after the, after the game said that, uh, told one of the reporters that I just closed my eyes and I said a Hail Mary. Today, that's a term that's used in American football, or football, as I guess we call it. Um, anytime there's a last second desperation play, it's called a, a Hail Mary. But you see, Staubach didn't come up with that term. He, he didn't actually pick it up in a Catholic Mass either. He, he picked it up from the movie The Godfather Part 2. <laughs> There was a character in that movie named uh, Frito, I believe is the way you pronounce it, which tells you I've not actually watched it. Shame on me, right? Um, but he, the, the character claimed that he caught fish every time he said a Hail Mary before casting his line into the water. And yet that's not where this term originates either. You know, the, the prayer and the term itself were being used as a good luck charm long before the Godfather was even released. In the 1930s, a Notre Dame Dame football player named Noble Noble Kinzer, who was actually a Presbyterian, uh, suggested that they pray before this important fourth down play early on in the game. Well, since the rest of the players were were Catholic, they prayed what they knew. They prayed the Hail Mary prayer, and and immediately afterwards, the team scored on that play. Later in the game, they decided to do the exact same thing and scored again. And then afterwards, one of the players was being, being interviewed by a reporter and he said this. He said, hey, that Hail Mary is the best play we got. So most of you know, though, that, that Hail Mary is a short term, a, a phrase for a Roman Catholic prayer, which is the basis for the rosary. And that prayer begins with these words, Hail Mary, full of grace. It's at the very heart, a prayer that's prayed not to God, but to Mary herself. A prayer that assumes that she has grace to dispense uh, to others. And a prayer that's that's asking Mary to then go to God the Father and and pray for for you. This erroneous prayer exists because of a wrong translation of our passage that we're looking at today. Because of a wrong translation of Gabriel's greeting uh, that we see here. It's a translation that, uh, if you don't know, the the original uh, text of the New Testament was written in Greek. At one point in history, it was translated into Latin, uh, and, and then the uh, Roman Catholic Church at one point in history took the Latin and translated it back into an English phrase. Uh, numerous times, actually. But anyway, the, the mispronunciation or the mistranslation is what happens here so that in verse 28, when Gabriel meets her, you can see it here, he says, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. The word hail and hail Mary in the rosary prayer, it's, it's just an old word for joyful greeting as in rejoice, O favored one. It's a a greeting. That's that's not the issue here. It's the next phrase that really becomes the issue of translation where it says, O favored one, uh, which was wrongly translated to say as full of grace. The original Greek shows that the meaning of this phrase is, is that God was blessing her, not because of her own righteousness, but because of God's unmerited grace, unmerited favor to her. See, the, the word that Gabriel uses for favored there, it comes from the Greek word for, for grace. That's the idea there. And, and, and in other words, Mary's not a source or a dispenser of grace, but rather she's the receiver of grace. That's the amazing thing going on here. So I know some of you might be asking, I mean, how many are wondering why in the world I'm, I'm beginning a sermon on Hail Mary, Right? Why in the world begin looking at a, uh, a teaching in the Roman Catholic Church that we, we understand to be false? And I'll, I'll tell you, the, the reason is this. Because we as Protestants, since the Reformation, we, we tend to have this really negative view of Mary. You know, we're okay being like, Paul's pretty cool, and Peter's neat, and you know, you know Mary and Martha, that Mary, that's fine. But when it comes to Mary, the mother of God, right, that, those are phrases that we kind of panic when we hear them. We are, we are so bothered by, by what we see as this Roman Catholic exaltation, this veneration of Mary, that, that we tend to act as, as though she herself had asked to be praised this way. And that's just not the case. You see, neither Mary nor Scripture ever implies that anyone should worship her, nowhere. It, it never says that she continues to be a virgin after the birth of Christ. And in fact, it teaches the, the exact opposite. It teaches that she had other children uh, that, that were conceived quite normally with her husband Joseph later in life. So listen, don't let false teaching, a false idea from a false translation about Mary cause you to pendulum so far the other direction that, that you hold an unequally unbiblical view of Mary that's just in the opposite direction. I'll read you this quote by, by Kent Hughes. He says it well. He says, Just because others have thought too much of Mary, we must not imagine that our Lord is pleased when we think too little of her. So as we learn about her today, I I think it'll become easy for us to imagine just just how grieved Mary herself would be to to know that people uh, are, are looking to her for hope when they should be looking to Christ for hope. And so join me today as we, we let Scripture and Scripture alone shape our understanding of, of, of who Mary is and the role that, that God has given Mary in this history of redemption, this work of redemption that he's doing. Because it's amazing. Let's start verse 26, where it says there, in the six months. When it says the six month, we, we have to understand that the context there is tied to last week. When we knew that Elizabeth had been pregnant, she's now been prez, uh, pregnant for six months. Gabriel, the same angel that visited Zechariah we looked at before, is sent by God to deliver a message. And the recipient of that message is explained in a few ways in this passage. First, we're told her name. Her name is, is Mary, which it really has no big significance, which is surprising since you see that Jesus and Joseph both do, or uh, Jesus and John both do. So her name is Mary. Second, she is from Nazareth. Nazareth is a a town. It's one that we know so well because we're growing up in a a Christian culture in a lot of ways. But at the time, Nazareth would be like saying uh, Sylvia, Kansas. How many of you know much about Sylvia, Kansas? Right? Nobody. It actually exists. I I didn't make it up, right? Maybe you've heard of it. Probably you've never heard of it. That's Nazareth at the time of Christ before this happens. It, it was such a nothing town, in fact, that when archaeologists are, are digging around and trying to find proof of all these things in Scripture, it took until 1962 before they ever dug up anything that said the word Nazareth on it that, that existed before the birth of Christ. See, so it only comes on to, to be this well-known thing after his Christ. Not only was it a, this nothing town that no one knew about or cared about, those who did know anything about it had a, a, a terrible reputation in the Gospel of John, you, you might remember that, uh, I think it was Philip who's going and talking to Nathanael, and, and, and Nathanael responds when he says, hey, I think I found the Messiah back and coming from Nazareth. Can, and he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So we know where she's from and her name. Third, Mary is described as a virgin. We're going to come back to that in a minute. Fourth, she was betrothed to a man named Joseph who was a descendant of King David, um, which is a big deal, yes, but not as significant as you think. You're way down the line at this point. And so that that tree, that's not Arkansas, that tree has branched out significantly. No offense to Arkansas. Uh, So let me ask you this. How old do you picture Mary at this moment? How many of you think she's 20 or older? Just throw your hand down. How many of you think she's 18 or 19? How many of you picture her being maybe 15, 16, 17? How many of you picture her younger than that even? Okay. Um, from what we know about the age of betrothing, Mary was most likely somewhere between the age of 12 and 14. That's weird, right? In our culture, that is incredibly strange. Really odd. But, but what you've got to understand here is that that was normal in their culture. That wasn't bizarre for them. And, and she was a very, very young woman. And she's living in this culture that has this really uh, low view of women, we would say. And, and really, indeed, is the truth. And yet, God honors her. God is gracious to her. And you look at Mary's life. You know, I find one of the more interesting things about this whole thing is that as, as parents, we, we tend to give our children every wonderful thing we possibly can. We want to put them in the absolute best circumstances we can find, the best schools we can get. We put them in the, uh, the best clothes we can clothe them in, the best sports programs, the best music and tutoring, and whatever it might be, we want to give them the best they can possibly have. How strange is it then, when we look at the situation going on here, uh, to see that God sends his son into the world, into this nothing town, to a poor family, a family that's now going to have this this scandalous story of of, of where he came from, and and who's going to begin their their family's life on the run from King Herod. I I mean, you realize that all the options God could have done. The, the most obvious one, I, I think if I were doing it, I would have sent them to, uh, to the daughter of the high priest at the time. Right? She's part of the, the religious elite at this point. She was rich. She was educated. She had maid servants, and, and many people knew who she was. She was well respected. And, and yet, God sends his son to this lowly girl of no reputation, and, and that's where he sends his only begotten son into the world. What do we learn from that? Now, I think your obvious thing is not what I'm going to say. You don't learn to send your kids into the worst situation you can probably think of. That's, that's not the point here. The, the point here, though, is that as, as Christians, we are, we are walking a different path than the world's walking. We are dancing to a different beat than the world's dancing to. We, we, we must learn to value things differently, to value generosity over possessions, to value humility over uh, prestige, over status, things of that nature. See, Christian, remember that this, Remember this. that when you, when you wonder about your own status in the world, it's easy for us to look at our life and evaluate our purpose, uh, whether we're living well based on the world. But, but, but when you think about, uh, you know, what a small impact you might feel like you're making in the world. Sure, you, 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 you know, you, you could have a larger role in your business. You could, you could run a larger business. You could have a higher rank in the army. You could, you could have a larger ministry that you're teaching through. Or, or you could teach at a more prestigious university. You could have a, a title that's more respected in our culture than the one that you do have. But but Christian, I'm I'm asking you to resist viewing your place in the world through the eyes of the culture. Because the Lord may call you to do something smaller, call you to do something simpler, something that has less limelight, but if the Lord calls you to do it, it is no less significant. Okay? Um, So we mentioned before already, but the angel says in this, when he first sees her, uh, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And God is showing grace to Mary and choosing her, choosing her to carry in her womb the, the Savior of the world. Uh, the Savior who would redeem even Mary herself from her own sin. I mean, we, we look at this. What, what a beautiful example that is of the gospel itself. It, we, we see this unmerited grace to needy sinners. And then in verse 29, we, we learn this about her. We learn that she was greatly troubled at the saying and she tried to discern what sort of greetings this might be? And you can imagine why, right? I mean, we look back, and Mary was most likely uneducated. But that doesn't mean she was dumb. I mean, everything we see about her tells us she was, she was very intelligent. She was wise. And she's troubled at this point because she doesn't yet know what the angel wants. But I mean, it's, it's an angel. We, we talked about it last week. But right, if you're out taking the trash out, and an angel shows up. Well, you, you begin to wonder these questions, right? The, the fact that he's standing before her, it's not only terrifying, but it, it raises all these possibilities. What does the angel want? Why is he talking? What is, why is he here? And so she's pondering what the angel's intentions may be, because at this point, Gabriel hasn't told her anything. And so the angel responds to her there in verse 28, where, uh, you know, in verse 28, she was called favored. Now in verse 30, Gabriel tells her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Again, this is the word for grace. By God's grace, she will be the mother of God incarnate. And Gabriel tells her that her child's name is to be Jesus. Now, Jesus was actually a very common name in the culture at this time. It's a a name that means God saves or or, or the Lord is salvation. Um, Perhaps Mary at this point is starting to understand that this child that the angel is talking about is the promised Messiah. Uh, Gabriel says in verse 32 that Jesus is going to be great. All right, there's a, a difference there. Not just, you know, great before the Lord as we saw of John last week, but just great without any qualification. All throughout the Old Testament, as we, as we work through it, I don't know if you ever noticed it, but, but God himself is called great over and over. God's works are great, his mercy is great, his wisdom is great. This, this is this, this understated way of saying that Jesus is indeed God. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. Jesus' divinity is is then more pronounced in the second half of verse 32 when Gabriel says, says the child will be called the Son of the Most High. That's significant. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever of his of his kingdom. There will be no end. And and I don't know if Mary would have understood this, but but as it was related to anyone else, it would have been clear that that the angels are paraphrasing from Second Samuel 7, 13 through 14 or the angel. Um, and, and, so, and that verse says he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And then two verses later in 2 Samuel, that the prophecy continues. And, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so Gabriel is announcing to this young girl that her child will fulfill this prophecy. Jesus is both the descendant of David and the Son of God. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the one ancient hope of God's people. And and so this raises a few questions for us right off the bat. Do do you believe the promise delivered to Gabriel? Right? We we keep looking to see, does Mary believe it? But do you believe it? Do you you look to Jesus as your Savior? Do you revere him as your eternal King forever? And so then Mary asks a question of Gabriel. Gabriel. We, we see it there in verse 34. If you've got it open before you look at it, she, she asks, how will this be since I am a virgin? You see, Mary's betrothed to Joseph. We always explain that as engaged, but it's actually a, a bit more complex than that. It, it's, it's like being engaged, but there's this much stronger legal binding involved in this. Uh, The betrothal period lasted usually a year, sometimes a little longer than during that time. The couple did not live together in the same house. They did not have sexual relations. Any infidelity during this period would be considered adultery. It would lead to uh, what was a legal legal divorce of some sort. And and so now Mary understood that the angel meant that she was going to be conceiving soon. That's kind of the heart of her question at this point. And she also knows that, that pregnancy cannot happen outside of sex, and, and she's never had sex, and she's putting these things together. And so she's not doubting God's word, right? Don't put her on the same level as Zechariah last week, but, but she's confused. She, she's barely a teenager, maybe, and so she's asking this angel, she's asking, how is this going to happen? Because I am a, a virgin, and I will be until Joseph and I are, are married. She's, she's asking, what exactly are we talking about here? Can imagine the, the fear. You have no idea what's going through her mind. And really, it's a, it's an honest question. It, it's the question that we all ask even today, right? It's it's the uh, the whole situation. I'll, I'll say there's a time in my life when I'm right in line behind Mary to you know I, I second that question. How is that really happen or possible? I mean, Gabriel, have you no understanding of the reproductive you know process of humans? How could Mary, this this young woman, become pregnant outside of sexual relations? And and the simple answer here is that it was the will of the Lord for her to be pregnant, and so she would be. It's a miracle. It's a once-in-history occurrence, and it was absolutely necessary. You see, the the virgin birth is foundational to the Christian faith that we, we profess as Christians. If you notice when we're, when we're reading the creeds, it's included in both the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed. You know, truly, if, if we reject the virgin birth of Jesus, we, we reject the Christian faith. Here's, here's why. You see, Jesus was, was born of a human woman, and that was necessary for Jesus to be truly human. He, he nursed as a baby. Later, when he was hungry, he ate. When he was thirsty, he drank. When he was tired, he slept. These are all human things. Uh, We don't think about it much, but Jesus would have had an actual blood type. Sumo negative, right? Who knows? You know, he was truly a human because of Mary. But But if Joseph was his biological father, Jesus would be only a man, merely a man, and thus he would not be able to be the divine savior we need. He would not have been able to be sinless. It is necessary that Jesus is also truly God, as the Nicene Creed Creed states it, God of God, light of light, very God of very God. Philip Ryken, again, puts it this way. He says, only the virgin birth preserves the humanity and the deity of Jesus Christ. His conception by the Spirit points to his deity. His birth from a woman points to his humanity so then Gabriel gives her an answer there in verse 35. How will this happen? He says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. There is nothing vulgar in these words. In short, the the Holy Spirit causes this to happen which really shouldn't surprise us. We see the Holy Spirit at, uh, involved in the work of God at every point in history, from the, uh, the creation of the cosmos to the point that you came to believe the gospel, if indeed you have. Mary never asked for a sign, as Zechariah did, but Gabriel gives her one. He tells her about her, her cousin Elizabeth, who Mary knows is very old, or uh, as Zechariah put it, advanced in years. Um, and for, for Mary to learn about Elizabeth being six months pregnant pregnant was this, this proof or intended to be this proof of the closing words of the angels, which are beautiful words because Gabriel tells her, for nothing will be impossible without or with God. And, and Gabriel, of course, means that God could cause her to conceive a child in her womb and remain a virgin. One moment she was not pregnant and the next moment she was a miracle occurred. See that nothing's impossible with, with God is, is not limited to the virgin birth. That truth applies to every aspect of our life because God is God. God is truly and absolutely sovereign. Therefore, literally, nothing is impossible with God. I mean, do you understand that? Not just on paper, not in theory. I mean, you understand that because, you know, faith finds a sure footing in the absolute sovereignty of God. And there are things in your life, things in, in, in your world where I, I know because I'm, I'm tempted to do it. I, I do it sometimes too where, where, where there's something that I think, oh, wouldn't that be great? And, you know, I just think, nah, nah, that can't really happen. You know, my... Things like, you know, can my family be restored from divorce or separation? Nah, no, that can't really happen. You know, you begin to think God can't heal this medical situation or this emotional pain is just too deep to ever come back from. Or you begin to think my friend, you know, Karen or Bob or whoever, she's she's been burned by Christians, burned badly. You know, she rejects the gospel so strongly, there's, there's no way she's ever going to, Believe the gospel. There's no way she's ever going to show up to church with me. There are a lot of situations that we we take in our life. And we put in this little bucket of yeah that's impossible. It can't happen. Um, and, And Gabriel's telling Mary here. God's teaching us here. You people have no idea. Because truly nothing is impossible with God. I mean, do you really get that? With, with God, your family can be restored. Your, your pain can be healed. Your friend Karen can receive hope in the gospel. And so, you know, stop pretending, uh, Christians, as, as though it is impossible. And, and start asking God through prayer to do the things we think are impossible. I'm not saying he's obligated to do so, but he certainly can. And we ask too little. Because there's no brokenness that God cannot fix. There's no relationship that God cannot restore. There's there's absolutely no sickness that God cannot heal. No sin He can't forgive. No grief He cannot comfort. There is no sinner that God cannot grant faith to. There, There is no life on this planet that is so far God that God can't take that life and restore it and renew it. When we realize that God has actualized the virgin birth, we we can then believe rightly that anything and everything is indeed possible with our God. I don't usually ask for a response, but amen? Let's get to our, our last verse today. There in verse 38, Mary responds to this message from God delivered by Gabriel. And she says this, she says, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So I've got this Apple Watch. I think it's pretty great. I just wanted to tell you that. No, really. uh, uh, It intentionally does not pop up text messages, notifications to me, because that would drive me nuts. But, But it does pop up my calendar and will tell me, hey, do this or do that. Uh, things of that nature. One, one day last week, Laura and I were having this text exchange in the day, early in the morning. She was out uh, taking back home to school and I was at home, and, uh, and Laura texted me. She says, I forgot to tell you I don't wake the girls up until 7.30 now. I said, okie dokie, I just wake up when the watch tells me. Uh, and she says, I think I changed it on the calendar. And I said, you did. And, and I don't look at the time on my watch to decide when to do things. The watch just tells me to do them, and I do them. And Laura responds, you are a slave to your watch. I was joking. I think she was joking. If it were reversed, I would just exploit this to my benefit by the things I put on her watch. But um, I was joking. But when Mary says here in verse 38, look down at that. She says, I am a servant of the Lord. That word servant is the same Greek word that is translated as slave at times. We tend to translate the word as slave when it's referring to an individual who's forced into service. And we tend to translate it as uh, servant when the person is willing and submitting themselves to, to the service. Uh, here, Mary is an absolute picture of humility before the Lord. We, we, we see in this story and, and, and you know, and... We only see the sometimes we only see the blessing of God choosing her, but this this choosing is actually going to bring a lot of trouble into her life. The story, you know, when I look at the story, I'll I'll tell you this: when I'm able to get out of everything I thought I knew about Mary and just come to the text, I look at Mary here and I just love her so much. It, It makes me want to be more like Mary, to have faith like Mary. Not, not the souped-up Roman Catholic version of Mary, but, but Mary as she truly, really was. Because here is this, this scared young girl, and yet she is so bold in the face of fear. Her trust in God is so durable, it's so strong. And, and you know, she doesn't hear this information and can give some list of buts, right? You know, but, but Joseph might leave me, but my parents, they're going to be so mad, but I, I'm just too young, right? She doesn't ask God to even guarantee that everything's going to be okay before she agrees to it. She didn't ask for a few weeks, you know, can I pray about this and get back to you? She she knows one simple thing. She knows this is what the Lord desires of me. She just leans in. Yes, it was ultimately out of her control. I see that too. But but, but Mary's heart was willing, 100% submissive to the will of God. That's what I want. For me, that's what I want for all of us. Because the best way to experience Christ and his power is by absolutely surrendering ourselves to him. She won't won't have to, but Mary was willing to give up her future husband. She was willing to give up her reputation. You, You can only imagine the way her neighbors were going to talk about her. Put simply, Mary believed God's word delivered by the angel Gabriel. We, we, too, are called to believe God's word. Not, not as it's delivered by the angel Gabriel, but it's given to us in the 66 books of the scriptures. And that also means trusting God with our lives, truly trusting him with our, our souls, our relationships, our children, our careers, our education, ours, well, trusting him with everything. So I just ask this, are you, are you willing to trust the Lord like this? you really can and i'm going to quote from philip reichen again but but he wrote this he said by the grace of god through faith in christ and by the work of the holy spirit we are able to say what mary said have it your way lord not mine i'm ready to do your will let's pray father what a glorious truth it is that jesus is god And therefore able to save us completely. We thank you that he's come to make us new creatures and citizens. As he reigns as the great king forever. Lord if we haven't already would you grant us faith. So that we would receive the salvation that Jesus offers in the gospel. And if we are sitting here today and we have received it. Would you teach us to walk in this glorious grace. Lord would you truly make us your willing servants. Give us hearts like Mary.